Well, we're thinking in the sermon of what Paul writes to the church in, in Philippi that um, Alec read for us earlier on, and Paul's call to discipleship that's not based on what we have done, who we have been, what ancestors are, but on something else entirely. Fred um, Craddock tells the story of a missionary family in, in, uh, in China. It must have been just shortly after the Second World War. A man and a wife and uh, two young children, and they were forced to leave the country. The communists had taken over and missionaries were no longer welcome. One day, a band of soldiers arrived at their, their door and told this missionary and his wife that they had two hours, two hours to pack up before the troops would come, soldiers would come and escort them to the railway station. They'd be permitted to take with them a hundred kilos, a hundred kilos in weight. So they started um, bickering, really, arguing about what they should take. It's an interesting question, actually, to, if you have an idle moment, if you had only 100 kilos that you could take, what would you take with you? Well, they were on the spot, two hours. What about this vase? It's a family heirloom. It's priceless, very valuable in itself, but has an emotional value too. This typewriter, brand new, so useful to us. We can't leave that behind. What about some books? These books I really, I really treasure. We've got to take those with us as well. So on and on it went, and they put things on the, on the, on the bathroom scales until they, and they whittled it down. They left all sorts of things behind, just 100 kilos of stuff. And five minutes later, when the two hours were up, the soldiers came and said, okay, are you ready? And they said, yeah. Did you weigh your stuff? They asked. Yes, yes, we, we did. We've got 100 um, kilos on the dot. That includes your children, of course. Uh, no. And in an instant, the vase was left behind. The books were left behind. Everything else became, as it were, rubbish, meaningless, pointless. If they couldn't take their children with them, how valuable, how precious they were. And Craddock used that story to illustrate the power of what he calls the moment of truth. Now, we use that term in, in different ways in English, but what he meant was that sometimes events crash into our lives in so shocking a way that we're forced to view our lives in a whole new light. And what seemed to be so important and valuable suddenly becomes meaningless. Uh, we have some friends who are Rwandans, and uh, they occurred to me just now on the 25th anniversary of the, the genocide uh, in Rwanda. Elsie and Nicholas had a son and a plastic bag, and that's all they came to Scotland with. They were fortunate, blessed, to manage to escape the country 
he's a tutu, she's a hutsi. That was their moment of truth. But other things happen, don't they? Deaths, divorces, breakups, losses, loss of a job, illness, things that are frightening and that in a moment change your life. And then you, you evaluate, well, what really matters in my life? And suddenly what seems to be so valuable are things that you spent so long working for and that you'd protect and ensure a cast to one side. No, I, 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 this is so much more important. Paul is saying in our passage to Philippians, just that. On that road to Damascus, he had that moment of truth. And his language in Philippians here is blunt, and the word that's translated very politely in our New International Versions as rubbish is much worse than that in Greek. It's a much stronger word. He's blunt, he's raw, he's direct, because he's not only passionate about what he feels, but also he's angry. He's angry with people as he was in, 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 with the people in Galatia and also to some extent with the people in Rome that we thought about five, five weeks ago. But here in, in Philippi, there were teachers who were proclaiming that salvation would come through circumcision. Effectively, you could only become a Christian if you became a Jew first, not that those distinctions were in any way said out loud because the idea of Christianity as a different religion had not yet been thought of. They saw themselves all as Jews. But the idea was that you could only come to Christ through circumcision, and he was livid. The Philippian church, unlike the Roman church, was made up primarily of non-Jews, so there were an awful lot of people who were caught up in this. They were mostly Gentiles, so very few had been, uh, had been circumcised. And Paul says in verse 3, nonetheless, that they already have been circumcised, we who are the circumcision. What these teachers were offering was something in addition to what Christ had done. And it wasn't salvation, but mutilation. A mutilation not just of their bodies, but even worse, of their faith. And Paul is saying, in effect, these other teachers want not just to carve your body, but also your faith. They want to make you believe that they can do something to your bodies that's better than what God has done for your faith with his son. Come on. You can't believe that. It's strong words. And he was passionate. And if you think about it from the point of view of, the, uh, of Jewish people, indeed of Paul himself, for over a thousand years, they had been practicing circumcision. It was a sacred, it was a biblical sacrament, as it were, for God's people. All his life, Paul had been raised to see it as a sign of God's covenant, of purity, of holiness, of closeness to God. Sign that Abraham and Moses and all those who came before him held dear. And now he's saying, it's rubbish. Can you imagine if a minister stood here in this pulpit and described the Lord's Supper as a nauseating display of cannibalism? How shocked you would feel. 
Of course, that was one of the charges that was made against communion in the, in the early days of the church, that they were eating the body and blood of Christ. How shocking that was for them. How shocking it would be for people today. And how awful it was for him to say, it's meaningless, this circumcision. It's rubbish. <coughs> so why does he do it and why does, he, why does it matter to us? Well, because he knows in the light of Jesus circumcision had become a way to replace grace. We saw five weeks ago when we looked at that passage in Romans that that was very important. And in order to make that point as powerfully as possible, Paul speaks from his own personal experience. My friends, let me imagine if I said to you, Money and worldwide fame are, uh, are meaningless, utterly meaningless. The life of the rich and the famous is typically an empty existence, achieving massive power is empty. Now, if I were to say things like that, I think, well, I hope, anyway, you, you'd be pretty skeptical because you'd be thinking, well, uh, Guy's not talking from his experience. He's not rich and he's not famous. But if a billionaire were to stand here, like Jeff Bezos or Bezos, how do you pronounce his name? You know, the chap who's just divorced his wife and uh, um, given her $36 billion. He's the founder of Amazon. Now, if Jeff Bezos were to stand up here and say, uh, the life of the rich and the famous is utterly meaningless and pointless, uh, well, I would pay attention to that personally, and I dare say many of you would too. You'd be speak he would be speaking from his personal experience. And in Philippians 3, Paul's taking pains to point out that he knows what he's talking about. He's talking from his experience. I know how futile it is, he says, to pin your salvation on outward ceremonies and laws because I spent most of my life doing that. I spent most of my life doing that. I had a wonderful religious pedigree. I was so convinced that keeping the law was the, was the only way to heaven. I persecuted Christians. Acts tells us that he was near Timothy and Timothy was led off to die. And we suspect that Paul was involved in numerous executions of Christians. And they were very suspicious of him, of course, when he came to faith for that very reason. So he's speaking from personal experience. He was so passionate that he even had Christians persecuted and led off to be killed. But he's now saying, I've met Jesus and I know now that all my shining religious accomplishments are rubbish. And the revelation that Jesus had died, that God's own Son had died to secure salvation, turned his whole world upside down. And to think, I thought at one time that that pile of rubbish was what I was going to present to God as my ticket to heaven, as it were. So now all I want, he goes on to say, is to know Jesus more. Not just to know more about Jesus, but to know him more. 
to experience him more, to improve my relationship with him. For most of his life, Paul's been saying, look at me, look at me, look at how, look at what I've done. But now, Paul is saying, we see this most perfectly in 2 Corinthians, all that he's saying is, look at Jesus, don't look at me. Look at Jesus and what he's done. So Paul knew for sure that salvation comes by grace and grace alone. Because at one time, Paul had actually belittled and arrested and killed Jesus' followers. That realization came to him with even more power. And yet, knowing that salvation is a gift, he can go on to write about what happens next. What happens next? He goes on to write, he's going to press on, he's going to sprint like a runner for the finishing line in order to attain the goal of of getting a better grip of Jesus, of, of fulfilling God's plan for him. At first sight, when you read this, it sounds a bit like he's needing to win God's acceptance. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, God's got a purpose for me. And now, I'm going to achieve that. Because don't forget what's come before that. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about What is his purpose now? I press on to win the prize. Jesus took hold of each and every one of us for a purpose. And I remember once standing in front of my congregation in Bucky and this powerfully coming through to me of seeing each person there not in colors and in what they looked like and how old they were, but in who they are, who they were, and what purpose God had for each and every one of us, and what an awful privilege and responsibility it was as their minister, as their pastor, to help them achieve that, first of all to see it, and then to achieve that purpose. Because if I were to ask you, well, what has God called you to? What is your purpose in life? I'm asking a very important question indeed. We all of us need something bigger, something better than ourselves. But Christians believe that God's got a purpose for our lives. And we have an empty feeling inside of us until such time as we start to work towards it and press on to achieve it to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. So I wonder what that purpose is for you. No matter what place we are in our lives, whether we're starting out, whether we're getting going, whether we're winding down, whatever, we find real joy, we find peace only when we're at the center of God's will for us. And if I may use an analogy, his 
His purpose is like a storm. And it's only at the center of that storm that there is stillness. And only at the center of God's will do we find peace. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for what Jesus has done for us. That salvation is not because of what we have tried to do, but because of what Jesus has achieved. And yet you have for us, as you had for Paul, a purpose, a plan, a design. Grant, Lord, that we may find that purpose and strive as Paul did to achieve that, to run the race towards that for which you have called us. In Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.